0: Edition of the Untitled Jeff Buck Podcast. It is a post-Kentucky edition of the podcast, and it's a little bit of a unique edition of the podcast tonight because I am taking voicemails from my patrons, people who um, are my bosses on Patreon.com, and using those people as my co-hosts for the podcast because I was planning to do a media member from afar via Skype and technology didn't really work out. So I thought maybe some people who are patrons uh, would like a chance to be part of it. So you're going to hear voicemails that people sent in, and I will try to answer those if they're questions or comments or react to their comments. Now, before the race, when I sent this information out to my patrons, I had told people, hey, listen, you might want to stay away from the winner. So that way everybody doesn't talk about the winner. I I didn't want every single voicemail to be about that. So My patrons, uh, such excellent listeners, none of them talked about the winner. So let me just open by throwing a question to myself or a comment, I guess. And that is, gee, what did you think of Martin Truex Jr.'s performance tonight? Wow. I mean, that was pretty much a a huge ass kicking, obviously. Um, You look at races like the Coke 600 last year that he dominated or the Dover fall race last year that he dominated. And those are the kind of races uh, typical of the number 78 team when they win, at times he's won three races this season, racking up the playoff points in a huge way, which is going to have a major implication. Um, I, you know, a lot of people have said, okay, well, does that mean we can lock him in for Homestead? Not necessarily, because you could still get sixty points in a race these days—ten um, for each stage, forty for winning—and he has what twenty-eight points now, I believe. Uh, twenty-eight playoff points. Now, the thing is about those playoff points. He can use those at the start of each round. So, no matter whether he uses them or not in round one, if he makes round two, boom, he has 28 again to start. He can actually even add to those um, by getting more stage wins or, or victories in that round. And he's also going to add to them because the points leader um, at the end of the regular season gets 15, even second place, I believe, gets 10. So, he's looking at quite a significant cushion. Almost, uh, you know, perhaps half a race, more. And it's basically a mulligan that he can have each round. So it doesn't guarantee he's going to make it, though, because two bad races could easily take him out. And, of course, um, once he gets to Homestead, it's it will be all even, no playoff points involved with that. But still very dominant. I, I think they're obviously the team to beat this season. They seem to be fast every single week. They, they are very reminiscent of Harvick a few years ago. Where just rolling off the truck super fast. Everything seems to be falling in place. And uh, overall, just a very, very good season so far for Martin Truex Jr. and the number 78 team. So um, let's get to the first voicemail here and see what is on your mind after the Kentucky race. Hi, Jeff. This is Jeff Hess from Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. Just read your tweet uh, with Brad Keselowski's quote about having to get these cars changed to get put it on a better show. That's something I've been saying for a long time. Something needs to do with that splitter. So I want to get your thoughts on that. Thanks. So, yeah, Jeff, uh, great question, obviously. And let's talk about Keselowski's comments because I think that's going to be probably the story of the night coming out of this race. Um, the true X thing, you know, interesting, but I think that the Keselowski, what he had to say, especially uh, criticizing the car will have some, some more implications. First of all, He was frustrated, so part of this was out of frustration, but he said that the car is a poorly designed race car, that's a quote, and it makes racing on tracks like this very difficult to put on the show we want to put on for our fans. He was basically saying you have to get everything you can get on restarts, because if you don't, uh, you're going to end up at the back, not be able to pass, and so that's what uh, helped lead to his wreck that collected Jimmy Johnson and Clint Boyer. One reporter asked, what would you suggest? And Keselowski said, quote, it is time for the sport to design a new car that is worthy of where this sport deserves to be and the show it deserves to put on for its fans. Now, Keselowski later on Twitter walked back um, some of the tone of his comments saying he was frustrated, but the main point remained. uh, He wanted people to confuse his passion and love for the sport. But of course, he's right in a lot of ways. Um, You know, obviously the race wasn't, very good. And it stands in stark contrast to a couple years ago, the Kentucky race was one of the best races of the year. I know it's hard to believe now, but that was, remember, that was the first time they tried the lower down force package after NASCAR had wanted to go in the high drag direction. And people just raved about Kentucky. It was a fantastic show, and you really felt good about the lower down force. Well, last year's race wasn't as good, and that was odd because it was even lower down force. So you would have thought it would be better. Then they come back this year with even lower downforce than last year and probably the worst of the three races. So how do you really explain that? I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, there was a repave in there, so that had a lot to do with it. The track was also reconfigured partly. But you also have the counterarguments to that, which is that Kyle Larson went to the back tonight twice, started in the back, came to the front, had a speeding penalty, went to the front again, and um, he ends up finishing a solid second. So obviously he could pass cars. In fact, he said after the race quote, for sure it was hard to pass at times. There were a couple of times. I think I caught Clint early in the race, couldn't get by him and then was stuck behind Joey and Kevin for a while, but we were able to get by them. So basically he was saying, yeah, it was hard, but I could do it. He also said, I could see how it was probably frustrating for other people. My car was good. So I had fun. So, you know, how do you take that? I'm not really sure. Um, It'll be interesting to see where the, Direction of the sport goes past this because, as Steve O'Donnell told Nate Ryan on the NBC podcast this week, a Gen 7 car is potentially in the works. Hi, Michael from Flagler Beach, Florida, big junior fan. So, I enjoyed the race, but I agree with Brad. We got to do better with these mile and a half tracks. The racing definitely needs to improve. I mean, you know, it's a long race, and to sit here for three hours just to watch you know really good action on a restart and that's it um just isn't great you know it's these mile and a half tracks unfortunately the product that we currently have just isn't cutting it so i would love to see nascar design a new car and hopefully get something closer to what they have in the truck series i mean that the racing in that series to me is far better than the cup yeah so michael makes a good point there obviously you look at the Racing in the truck series, it certainly seems a lot closer and more competitive. But I do think a lot of it is the mile-and-a-half tracks themselves. I mean, you know, there's a great show that NASCAR puts on on the short tracks and on the road courses. Um, The mile-and-a-half tracks, obviously, we all know, if you're listening to this, they're just not as good. They're not as entertaining. And I I just wonder if there's a way that NASCAR could say, look, for the I, I know that, you know, two huge track companies control, uh, most of the races and both the, the majority of the tracks in both those companies are mile and a half tracks. But for the good of the sport, could we not figure out some better ways to get to smaller tracks? I mean, think about how different the sport would be if short tracks were the majority and intermediates were something that you only saw a few times a year. I mean, it'd be completely different. I think a lot of the problems that the sports had over the last decade would be, be erased. I think it'd be a much more popular sport. I think it it would be healthier, and it certainly would be a lot more entertaining to see these guys beating and banging every week. You'd have a lot more rivalries. You know, I just think that's that's where the sport needs to get. You you can only do so much with these races on mile and a half tracks to make it a good show. Hey Jeff, this is Chris from Essex, Ontario, Canada. I have a couple comments based on the race tonight. I have to agree with Keslowski in his interview that. The track was a one groove track. I don't think that VHT or the tire dragon did much for the race tonight. I also have to comment on the green, white checkered and the overtime line. Personally, I think if that overtime line wasn't there, Truex would have lost the race because Kyle Larson was coming. Other than that, I think it was a pretty standard mile and a half race. Yeah. So it's interesting. Let me start with your second point first there, Chris. Um, I think that Martin Truex Jr. took the white flag. So in that case, the overtime line wasn't going to come into play no matter what the rule was because since it was the last lap, um, it, any yellow at that point is going to end the race, uh, overtime line or not. That's unfortunately just the brakes, and I think in that situation with cars spinning through the grass, grass on the track, they just they just had to throw it. But I do think you're right definitely in terms of the tire dragon. I don't really know if that was effective certainly didn't seem to widen out the groove and provide for side-by-side racing that people had hoped and were optimistic about. Maybe it would have been even worse if they hadn't done that. Again, though, I think it comes down to a repave as well. I mean, we've seen over and over again, repaved tracks do not put on the best racing. And it's a shame every time they try to repave something. Obviously, you know, you don't want the weepers at Kentucky. Remember, that was a huge problem. Um, A couple years ago, before they repaved it, there was a rainstorm in the morning on a practice day and it wiped out like six hours because they couldn't get the weepers to stop. It was like a a waterfall coming up from, from underneath the track. So obviously, you know, just put in better drainage. You have, you've got to repave in that situation, but it just doesn't make for good racing. And it's just going to take years of patience before you get back to something that looks decent again. Jeff Miller, Salem, Oregon. What? is it with Goodyear supplying tires that don't wear out how many times do we have to see good races after good races when they have tires that have tire wear and there's a big gap between new tires and old tires it's great that Truex got the win and he had the dominant car but after 50 laps the leader should not be able to hold them off when third place has four new tires I just don't get it Yeah, well, and Jeff, to your point, I mean, you would have thought, I mean, everybody would have thought, including Truex and Cole Pern, I think that any car with fresher tires at all would have completely blown by Truex on that final restart there. I know he got a big shove from Kyle Larson on the restart, but still, he would have probably spun his old tires or or something. Um, The fact that he was able to win a race and get get off to a huge lead over cars that had way fresher tires Um, definitely not a good look, but from the Goodyear perspective, if it's a perfectly, you know, smooth track, it's a repave there, there, you know, there's not a lot they can do there. Um, if they make them any more worn out, uh, cars are going to be blowing tires, probably putting guys in the wall. That's obviously not a situation they want. You know, you don't want Dale Jr. In the wall with a head injury because Goodyear got too aggressive on a tire. Um, that would obviously be bad for business. So I mean they're they're in a very tight box. I, I do wish they'd get more aggressive on many other tracks, but again with a repave, I just uh, I, I just don't know what they can do. Hey Jeff Dustin here in Indiana. Uh, Denny Hamlin fan, and my question is how many and which ones of the JGR drivers will make the playoffs, finding it difficult to continue to watch this every week as Denny Hamlin fan. And also, real quick, uh, any plans for a tweet up in New Hampshire are making the trek this year? Thanks. Well, Dustin, uh, I feel like fairly good news for you because even though the JGR cars haven't won a race this year, um, they're sitting in pretty decent shape, and that includes your boy, Denny Hamlin, who's 7th in points now. Um, But not only is he 7th in points, he also has a 67-point lead from what I'm looking at here over Joey Logano, uh, who would be outside the cutoff point right now on points. Um, so I think you're okay there. Kyle Bush is third in points. He's incredibly in good shape. There's not going to be 16 different winners at this point. Matt Kenseth is exactly on the bubble, basically. So he's the last guy in on points right now with a seven-point lead over Logano. I think Kenseth ends up making it because JGR is trending in the right direction. I also think Logano makes it. So I think the guy right now on points that could be falling out is Clint Boyer, who is uh, 17 points ahead of Kenseth. Maybe he ends up faltering down the stretch. Daniel Suarez is 18th in points. And uh, I think he is obviously going to have to win if he wants to make the playoffs. But overall, I still think JGR, despite not winning a race yet this year, has a good chance to put three of the four drivers in. As far as the New Hampshire tweet up, if everybody's going to New Hampshire, There definitely will be one. Uh, I'm not sure on the timing yet, but uh, I will be there. And I'm also traveling to the next three races after that, so the next four races overall, New Hampshire, Indy, Pocono, and Watkins Glen. Thank you to my patrons for uh, allowing me to travel, completely funded off uh, their generosity, so thank you. Hi, Jeff. This is Erica Isley, and I'm at Iowa Speedway, the fastest short track on the planet, watching the ARCA race. My favorite driver is Rusty Wallace. Here's my question. Kenseth added his name to the silly season list this week. So now we have Kenseth, Keselowski, Kane, some young guns of Jones and Bowman, and maybe some others. Can you help your Patreons figure out who is going where? Thanks. All right. Well, thanks for the question, Erica. Wow. Live from the ARCA race. That's uh, didn't expect that, but that's cool. Um, So as far as silly season goes, you know, first of all, I think I would probably take Brad Kozlowski out of it. I know technically he is still in it, but I just feel like he's going to end up re-signing with Penske. All indications are that he's probably has pretty deep ties to Roger, um, his truck series team that he owns, his deep ties to Ford. So I don't really see him as a candidate um, for the 88, although, you know, that would obviously be a fit since he... He used to run at Hendrick, but, uh, I think he'll end up still going back to Penske. Now, um, as far as Matt Kenseth goes, obviously Eric Jones will probably be taking his spot at Joe Gibbs racing. You know, there's some thought of like, oh, could Matt Kenseth just go to furniture row racing and sort of do a swap. But the problem is, uh, Barney Visser, who's the furniture Row racing owner said after the Kentucky race, Hey, you know, I'm not even sure I'm going to have two teams next year. I don't know if it's feasible for us. So that was kind of an interesting comment. Kenseth obviously can still drive. And, uh, you know, I think there's a possibility he could end up at the 88. The problem with the 88 is, you know, if you're Rick Hendrick, you can't really go to Nationwide or other sponsors and say, hey, uh, could you give us that same money you're giving for Dale Jr., uh, except for Alex Bowman or William Byron? Um, Because Nationwide's going to say, no, I mean, we'll give you money, but we're not going to give you that same amount of money. And so because of that, I think they've had to try to get a bigger name, but there's just not that many big names out there. Um, there's a lot of young talent out there, but not many huge names. So I think that's why, you know, a guy like Kenseth would possibly fit there. But then you also have people like Kurt Busch, who could be leaving Stuart Haas Racing if his contract isn't picked up. Deanna Kirkpatrick, in her final year at Stuart Haas, she could be out. So you have rides like the 41, the 10... Uh, possibly open, you know, is Casey Kane going to stay at Hendrick? His contract technically, I think, goes through next year. But there's been a lot of talk that he could be out. You hear about GMS Racing, which is Spencer Gallagher's team, or his dad's team anyway, moving up to Cup. Lots to talk about Ryan Blaney and whether he will become a third Penske driver next year. What happens to that Wood Brothers car? So many things left yet to be determined. It's tough to tell until some of the dominoes start falling what could really happen. Hey, Jeff, and uh, all you Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast loyal listeners. My name is Davey Siegel. I am 21 years old from Rockville, Maryland, about 30 minutes outside of D.C. So I'm not going to ask a question about the 78 because obviously he dominated the whole night. I'm going to ask a question about Casey Kane, Jeff, you were tweeting about it during the race. Uh, You said he kind of just needs a fresh start somewhere. I'm just kind of curious, if you had to put your finger on it, do you think that he will be driving a cup car next year or he won't be? Because I'm leaning towards no. You look at Bowman, he might go to the 88 or the 5, and Byron might go to the 88. If I had to put money on it right now, I would say Casey Kane is not going to be in the Cup Series next year, but I just want to get your thoughts on that and his night and his season as a whole. Well, Davey, it's a great question. First of all, I do feel like Kane will still end up in Cup somewhere. The fact that he has 17 career wins, I mean, that is really impressive. It shows that uh, he didn't just have one or two great years. He's had a, a solid career overall. I know the last four years have been quite a struggle. But the guy can win. The guy is a talented driver. I don't think he's lost it. Has he lost a lot of confidence and faith in his his team to get the cars right? Uh, yeah, certainly. But I, I don't think that... You know, if he got a fresh start, I think that he could win again, be a contender again. And teams would, you know, gladly have a guy who's a veteran um, try to figure out how to how to make their cars go fast. As we just talked about, there's going to be several openings probably this year. The market is pretty decent for drivers. So I think there's some opportunities out there if if he ends up starting fresh somewhere um, to get his career back on a, a decent note. You know. He honestly might be a decent fit for Stuart Haas. I could could see that. In addition, I think people really underestimate how big of a fan base Casey Kane has. I mean, he's one of the most popular drivers year in and year out. So that's something as well for a team and sponsor to look at when they're thinking of who to hire. Are there concerns about the Cup Series talent pool death as we're clearly entering a transitional period where multiple established Cup drivers could be retiring in the coming years? For instance, Stuart Haas is an average driver age of 38 right now, but there's seemingly minimal replacement options for them, let alone anybody who can produce their own sponsorship. It seems that while we focus on drivers like Kyle Larson and Daniel Suarez and Chase LA taking over the sport and and those few top-level rides, there's not much focus on, you know, filling the other spots within these organizations. Yeah, that's another great question. I think it ties into all what we're talking about, right? Because if you think about it, there's a great, great young talent pool out there. I mean, it's probably the best group of young talent that I've seen since I've been around anyway, which is 2004 till now. Um, but the veterans, uh, there's still a lot of value there because name recognition, the ability to communicate with the crew chief, to know what you want out of a car, um, that, that goes a long way. And then Um, sponsors want somebody with a proven track record. I mean, you even look at guys like Chase Elliott, as much hype as there's been about him, and and he's running well, certainly, but he hasn't won yet. You know, Ryan Blaney just got his first win. Kyle Larson has a few wins, but all on two-mile tracks are bigger. So there's still a lot left to prove for these young guys, and if you're a veteran driver, you know, that really could go a long way in helping you stick around the sport a little bit longer because of what you said and that the talent pool for the... You know, 35 year old and older guy there's a demand for that kind of driver out there Hi Jeff, this is Terry from Phoenix, uh, long time listener first time caller uh, the question was had to do with ownership, there's a lot of talk about the drivers retiring and stuff, but the ownership seems to be getting kind of up there in age and has anyone looked at what's going to happen when uh, they all decide to retire or move on? Thanks, bye yeah, Terry, you bring up a great point because if you think about it, Rick Hendrick at 67 years old is really the youngest of these sort of legacy owners that have been around. Uh, Richard Childress is 71, Jack Roush is 75, Joe Gibbs is 76, Roger Penske's 80. So, you know, there, there's definitely going to be a change of the guard at some point, whether they step away voluntarily or whether they're just not able to come anymore. Unfortunately, that's what happens when you get old. And so, but I'm sure they do have a succession plan. You know, you look at Hendrick, for instance, right? I mean, they're not just going to let the team go away. His son-in-law, Marshall Carlson, is actually the team president. Um, so that there's obviously something there. I, You know, J.D. Gibbs, I'm sure, would have been able to step in for coach, but he's, you know, had his own health problems. Coy Gibbs, though, is another Gibbs son who could step up and keep the team going. You look at Roush Fenway Racing, And Steve Newmark already runs day-to-day operations there. Jack Rush has sort of um, had his role lessened a little bit. So I think these teams have succession plans, and obviously it's probably up to the family ultimately in some ways, but I I think most of them will continue to go on. Hey, Jeff. This is Mike South from Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, My comment is about NBC's post-race interviews. It seems very redundant to interview the driver on the track, wait five minutes, and then interview the same driver again in Victory Lane. The time between the two interviews is very dull, and the second interview has no excitement. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Mike, I think you're onto to something here. You know, when I first heard that NBC was going to be doing this, I thought it would be a little bit odd just the sight of a camera crew out there at the start finish line. But I actually liked that part. You know, the Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 1776 America. Woo. We are the champions. That was uh cheesy, but it was kind of funny and it turned into a a good moment for everybody to talk about the Martin Truex Jr. Stuff. I mean, he was obviously emotional. He had uh, the white smoke billowing from behind the car. Still. That was a cool visual. And so I like that. Now, Because of that, though, it makes Victory Lane seem just pointless. You know, it's like, geez, they just talked to this guy. Now they're talking to him again. And it's obviously because, you know, from a NASCAR standpoint, NASCAR is not going to give up on having the monster girls in Victory Lane. I'm sure that's a contractual thing. They have all the actual media photographers there stationed there. They have all the camera crews, all that stuff. Um, The the crew, that's where they're going to end up going. And so I'm sure they want that visual as well, but it just does seem redundant. And it, you know, it's sort of like pick one or the other, especially after they're going to have them again on the post-race show, you know, about 10 minutes later, they have him, the driver, winning driver, come on set. So you're interviewing the winner three times where I just think most fans want to hear from as many drivers as possible. So when you're interviewing the winner or any, you know, the same guy three times, whoever it is, it's like, okay, could we not be spending the time here a little bit better? Hey Jeff, Beth Butler from upstate South Carolina. Um, I'd like to compliment Rutledge Woods segments tonight. I tend to be more interested in the NASCAR lifestyle and side stories than even the actual racing, ironically. So the unique things that Rutledge was sent to talk about were good seasoning to the broadcast. I like the mix of looking at a fan experience and behind-the-scenes work uh, and even about the car. There's so much that goes into a race experience. I'm glad they're adding something like this into the mix. Well, Beth, that's a really interesting perspective, and I'm glad you weighed in on that, because I was thinking that fans were maybe thinking the opposite, actually. Um, I love Rutledge. He's an awesome guy. Um, but I thought that fans might be sort of looking at NBC's approach because, you know, it's, it's obvious what they're doing here with the uh, Otto Bolden stuff uh, at Daytona, the, the Olympic sprinter who was sort of doing the, the fish out of water thing. I guess you could say, um, and trying to explain like how it is to be a new fan. And then Rutledge saying, hey, look at the infield. Look at this fan zone I'm in. I, I sometimes feel like fans are like, oh, yeah, we, we already know all that. You know, We watch NASCAR every week. We don't need this new stuff, and that appeals to more of a casual fan. But, um, Beth, I know you're a serious fan, and, and that appeals to you. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe fans do like to see all sorts of sides of it. Maybe it's just Rutledge because he's so charming and funny and awesome that – People are like, yeah, you know, they'll watch anything he does and and he's just great. But I was thinking that fans are going to be like, you know, can we just get more stuff about the race or our favorite driver? Um, We don't need this, this, you know, around the track kind of element. But, hey, maybe people do like that. So great stuff on the voicemails, everybody. Thank you so much to the patrons for helping me out with this. I think it turned out well. I hope people enjoyed it and I'll try to do it again sometime if people truly did find some value in it. So of course, I definitely appreciate the patron support, um, not only helping with the podcast, but all they do to get me to the track and keep me employed and uh, with a roof over my head and all that stuff. I also appreciate Samtech, my post-race podcast sponsor, and something sort of exciting happened this week that I want to tell you about with Samtech because um, Ray Bergman, who is at the Ray Bergman on Twitter. I got a tweet last week and it said, Hey Jeff Gluck, what was that trade school you mentioned in your conversation with Jordan Bianchi? So Ray listened to the uh, post-race podcast from Daytona with Jordan and then wanted to know uh, what, what was Sam again? So I tweeted to him. I was like, Oh man, you made my day. I tagged Sam tech in it. I was like, they'll be happy. to you know you asked. Thanks for listening. Sam tech. So excited. They retweeted that. So that's like, uh as of now that's their most recent tweet um they were stoked and they also replied to him and said ray let us know if you need anything visit samtech.edu for more info or call us and talk to an admissions rep and that's that's a big positive for me because samtech at the beginning of the year they're like hey we want to come on um the post race podcast as a sponsor and i was like well you know it's kind of tough though cuz you know are are you going to be measuring the success by how many people sign up for the school? And there's like, no, because it's such a long process from the time somebody looks into it. to the time they apply to the school, the time they actually get in and, and enroll and all that stuff. So, you know, they they were just kind of blindly putting faith in the fact that maybe one or two people, however many might end up going there or tell their friends about it. So I don't know if, uh, Ray Bergman is going to end up going there or if he was in- interested for somebody else or just curious, But I thought it was cool that um, he discovered it. And so hopefully those of you who listen to the podcast have also learned some stuff about Samtech this year as I've been talking to them uh, or talking about them uh, on the podcast. And of course, um, if you wouldn't mind sending Samtech a tweet sometimes at SamtechEDU, um, I'm sure they would think that that was cool because um, they obviously we enthused by Ray Bergman's tweet. So I'm off to New Hampshire coming up this week. And I have a couple cool podcasts coming up before we get to the track. 12 questions with Denny Hamlin on Wednesday. And then Thursday, I'm talking with Sherry Pollux for the social spotlight. Now, Sherry, as you probably saw on Twitter after the race, tweeted from her hospital room, um, her excitement for boyfriend Martin Truex Jr. going to Victory Lane. Sherry had a recurrence of her ovarian cancer, had to undergo a surgical procedure this week. She was hoping to return home, I believe, Sunday, so hopefully that that happens. Now, in the social spotlight, we didn't talk about the uh, cancer in the interview. She wasn't wanting to put that out there at the time. Um, I, I think circumstances changed once Martin won, and, and it, it sort of became like a little bit easier for her to talk about it. But we did touch on a lot of social media stuff as well as social media for um, her Sherry Strong effort, which kind of gives some advice and helps people try to find a good direction on healthy living and cancer prevention, other things along those lines. So look for that on Thursday. So again, thank you everybody for listening. Really appreciate your support. And let me know whether you enjoyed the Voicemails podcast by tweeting with the hashtag jgvoicemails. So hopefully um, other people can talk about the podcast as well if you use that hashtag and get a conversation going. So I enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time on the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast.